Uh, good morning. Um, as Margaret said, it was a mistake in the update about the reading. It's the passage that she read, and in particular, I want to focus on verses 19 to 22 of that passage. Um, several people have asked, but know the title of the service, uh, um, is, is not a mistake. Um, I will come to that. Mistakes, mistakes, they happen, don't they? And sometimes mistakes are repeated so often that we believe them to be the case, just because we've heard it time and time again. Um, Adam and Eve eating an apple in the Garden of Eden. Well, it wasn't an, well the text says it was a fruit. It might have been an apple, but it might have been a tomato. Um, the nativity scene with the uh, Jesus there and the shepherds and the wise men. Well, firstly, the wise men did not visit Jesus until some time after when he was an infant. And secondly, we don't know whether or not there was three of them. It might have been four or five or two. Uh, we're told there were three gifts. But these things have been repeated so often that we just kind of get used to them. And it doesn't just happen with stuff in the Bible. In, in Casablanca, the film, nobody says, play it again, Sam. The phrase has been tied up with the film for years, but nobody actually says, play it again, Sam, in the film. And then again, not just mistakes that get repeated, sometimes things change over time, and the original purpose gets lost. Um, we're not very sure if it's, it's here today, we're not very sure if it's here on Monday or next Monday or the Monday after. Thomas Cook's travel agent's having a hard time, but, but its origins were through a man, you'll be surprised to know, who was called Thomas Cook, um, who organized people who were teetotalers to go to abstinence rallies. There was a big movement about trying to you know, quash the evils of drink, and Thomas Cook, who was a, a Baptist missionary, nobody, nobody's perfect, um, Tom, Thomas Cook, who was a Baptist uh, missionary, really was, was up in arms about this, I, you know, really. So he mobilized lots of folk to, to go to these abstinence rallies and complain. And then he kind of got a taste for organizing transport and travel for people. And so he began to do that on a bigger scale, most often actually with a, a, a spiritual or religious flavor to the trips. I wonder what he would make of what happens on the package holidays uh, these days. Eh? It's, it's changed now, both of these things, the repeated mistakes and things changing over time, um, are true with reference to the church as well. The most often repeated mistake is to refer to the church or call it a building. If it were a building, it'd be a bit strange that when Paul the Apostle writes his letters in the New Testament to, for example, the church in Galatia or the church in Corinth, he was writing to a group of people who didn't have their own building to meet in, but it was the church. The word church was already in use at the time of the New Testament. It wasn't Christians who invented the word church. The word church was already in common use, and it was a, a word that was used for a gathering of people for a particular reason or purpose. And so the assembly of the people was what the church referred to, and certainly not to a building. Then, as again has happened, happened with Thomas Cook and many other things, the church has often moved from its original purpose and calling. 
Now, a big difference between Thomas Cook and the church is that a travel agent's business is formed by people, and so it could be changed by people. And in fact, that's that happened very quickly in, in Thomas Cook's case. Um, there's a big fallout between him and um, his son, really, about the travel agency, and, and the, the son wanted to abandon the commitment to do um, religious or spiritual journeys. And, well, it's one person's word against another. It's one person's intention against another. But when it comes to the church, the church is not something that comes about because people wanted somewhere to go to be religious. Rather, it came about through the work of God. When we looked last week in the first half of Ephesians chapter 2, there it's being underlined that it's a work of salvation that calls us into being, and that's God's work and not ours. It is only through the grace of God that anyone can become and anyone can continue as a Christian. And the apostle underlined that in the passage that we looked at last week, the difference of being in Christ, being forgiven for our sins. Now, we can't do that for ourselves, can we? We can excuse ourselves and say, you know, I'm not really that bad. I know I did this, this, and this, but hey, I'm not okay. I'm basically okay. But we cannot give widespread forgiveness, The Apostle Paul talked about the difference of being in Christ as being brought from under God's wrath and judgment to peace with God. We cannot do that for ourselves. He talks about it from being death and sin to eternal life in the kingdom of God. We cannot achieve that for ourselves. And in the previous chapter in Ephesians 1, the Apostle explains something of the huge sweep of God's salvation and the church's place in that. We were to be a people called to enjoy the presence of God, to live out the kingdom ways, to share his love with others and call others to faith and to obedience in Christ. And yet, just as the focus shifted from the church as the people to church as a building, a repeated mistake, so it often shifted from the calling and purpose given by God And churches too often were thought of to suit ourselves, having programs that we fancy, accept life in ways as they are without seeking to grow into the life of Christ. So against that backdrop, I want to look at these last few verses in Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians 2, it is one of the few places where the church is talked of as a building. But it's not literally a physical building. If it were then, verse 20, Jesus would actually have to be a literal stone, piece of brick. Clearly, that's not what the apostle means. He's using the building as an illustration to what he's wanting to teach us about the church. And then, four things about that. Firstly, he says, in verse 20, that we have the apostles and the prophets as the foundation. Now, again, he's not talking of something physical or literal. We do not have the bones of Peter or Isaiah or John the Baptist, and nor do we want them. It's their message, it's their teaching that's the foundation. Now, a foundation is something that gives a building shape. Suppose someone um, buys a bit of land and um, he's intent on building um, some swimming baths in this bit of land. And so the work begins, and he's got the designs, he's got the plans, the foundations are are built and laid, and then he goes bankrupt. And after he's gone bankrupt, the land is is bought by somebody who doesn't 
fancy swimming baths, but who wants to build um, four cottages on the land. And he wants to sell the, the cottages later on for a handsome profit. Not to a handsome prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah, but for a, for a handsome prophet. And suppose then he says, there's no point in, in, in having to go back to the beginning and starting again. Foundations have been dug. We will just use these foundations. Well, disaster. You cannot have the foundations for swimming baths and then build four cottages on them. They require a different kind of foundation altogether. And so it is that if the church moves from this foundation that the apostles and the prophets give us in the message of Jesus, if we move from that, then we're building something else. It's not church. We're not at liberty, if we're Christ's church, to do other than build on what the prophets and apostles have laid down as the foundation. And so we cannot, for example, go through the Apostles' Creed and say, let's miss out that bit. We don't fancy that bit anymore. This bit's surely out of date. People don't believe that one anymore. Let's drop that. We can't. The foundations have been laid in the gospel message. And ideas like, well, everyone's going to a better place when they die, or what's for you won't go by you, or luck, or... It's enough if we're as good a person as the next person, or all religions say the same things, or Jesus was just a good man. All of these fail because they don't build on the foundation that's laid in the message of the, the prophets and the apostles. This is not what they said. And if we build on a different foundation, then it's something else that we're building. So the gospel message is a foundation, and we're not at liberty to tamper with it. And then the apostle says also in verse 20 that it's a building that's held together by Jesus as our cornerstone. Now, there's a huge difference between a building and a pile of bricks. They are not the same thing. And just because you have the right number of bricks, joists, floorboards, windows, doors, and so on, doesn't mean you have a house. Not yet anyway. And the building, it says, verse 20, is held together. That is, the church is not a collection of individuals, but people who are being brought together in a common faith, a common salvation, and a common saviour. And so there is to be that commonality, that Jesus shape, for it's the cornerstone that gives the building its shape. There's to be that Jesus shape in, in who we are and in, and in what we are about. The foundations might not make it clear, but as the building goes on, so it should become more obvious what is being built. On many a journey, I was puzzled as I drove um, past or through the Wraith Interchange when it was being redeveloped. Do you remember these horrible days? Cones everywhere and tailbacks everywhere and stuff like that. And, and I was often puzzled, you know, because I, could, I knew what the plan was, roughly, I knew what they were trying to do, and I could look out the car window and see the foundations, and I thought, I don't get it. I don't see how that stuff over there is going to fit with this bit over here and how it's all going to work. Now that it's finished, ah, I get it. I see. I know what they were doing. I mean, I didn't doubt what they were doing. I just couldn't see what they were doing. And so it is that 
It's not just enough for people to have the foundations to look at, but as it says in verse 20, we are to grow, being, being brought into shape by Jesus, so we are to make clearer, so we are to make more apparent to the world around what the life of Jesus looks like. As the building emerges, so people should be able to say, ah, that's what it's about, ah, that's what it means, ah, that's what it says. We're to become more Jesus-shaped, letting him and his ways be more clearly seen. Now, a building is undoubtedly weakened when bricks are taken out of it. If we have the right number of bricks and joists and floorboards and everything else, and we set about building the house, but then there's half a dozen joists that say, no, I'm no bothering, or... 50 bricks that say, I'm not going to be there, or a window that says, I'm off, I'm going somewhere else, then the building suffers. And in this illustration that the apostle gives here, he says, he's saying that everyone who's in Christ is to be joined together and part of this building, part of Jesus' people. And when we're indifferent about worship, when we're ambivalent about giving our, our time and our talents, when we hold back and do not serve, we sometimes think maybe that's just up to us, but no, it's not just up to us. It weakens the building. And a weak building, a building that's, that's poorly built, a building that's, that's falling down does not reflect well on the owner, does it? And when we do not give our best to Jesus, when we do not opt in and, and play as much of a part as we can in the work of his people and in his mission, when we're not giving that our best, then the build, it's like the building is being built without certain bricks and certain joists and certain windows that it, that it needs. And when it's weakened like that, it reflects badly in God. Who wants to have a building like that? Eh? Who wants something like, you see? And undoubtedly down through the years, that's precisely what in many cases has been going on. People imagine the Christian faith as a personal or a private deal between them and God. No, it isn't, says the apostle. We're being joined together with Christ as a cornerstone, being shaped. And we've all got a part to play in that. And in him, the whole building is joined together. And he says in verse 21, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. It rises. That is, the building is getting built bit by bit. Buildings generally speaking, don't go up overnight. And certainly they didn't go up overnight in Paul's time. It took a while. Now just think for a moment about a building being built. Now, suppose somebody um, is, is passing by the outskirts of a town and um, a hospital, a new hospital is being built. And they drive past and, and have a look at it. And, they, and then they say to their friend the next day, you know what, I drove past where they're building that hospital. Do you know, I'm not going to go for an operation there. Poof. You should see it. There's muck, there's cranes, there's diggers, there's workmen going all over it, making noise. It wouldn't be safe to have an operation there. Well, that wouldn't be fair. The building's not finished. Give it a break. Or if somebody else said, I drove past that new restaurant that was being, being built on the edge of town. See it? It's not even got a roof on it. You get wet having your dinner. Some of the windows are not in. Who wants to go out for a meal and have to keep your coat on? It's no, I'm not going there. 
It's not finished yet. Be reasonable. Be fair. Now, in the same way, the church is not finished yet. Hence the title up there, which, as I said, is not a mistake. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. That's what it stands for. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. I still make mistakes. Still get stuff wrong. And just in case you're in any doubt, so do you. (laughs) We all do, don't we? We all do. Hence the importance of, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Now, that's not to be used as an excuse for saying um, sin is okay. It's not to be used as an excuse for indifference. They call us, as Jesus said, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We still to aim for that. But we aim for it with the realization that, hey, it takes time. The building is still being built. And it is just, it is just as unfair For someone to write the church off because someone said this or someone didn't do that or someone's not providing such and such or someone's been not good enough in that kind of way, it's just as unfair for someone to do that as it is for a person to say, well, I'm not going for an operation at that hospital because it's not finished yet. Look at it, how messy it is. I'm not going for a meal at that restaurant. It doesn't have a roof. That's unfair. That's unreasonable. That's unrealistic. And we're not to be unfair, unreasonable, and unrealistic with one another. Of course, there are times when people grate up against one another. Of course, there are times when we don't notice things and and don't do what we should do. Of course, but hey, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. And he's still at work. That's what the apostle is saying in verses 21 and 22. The whole building is joined together. We've all got a part to play. It rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and it's still rising. And in him, in Christ, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So the building is going on. Yes, we're imperfect, but we've been built into a temple, he says, verse 21. A dwelling in which God lives, verse 22. Now, the temple was the meeting place of earth and heaven. In the Old Testament, the temple was a key part of faith. And there were strict conditions and who was allowed to enter and how far they could go in and so on. When Jesus came along, he made it clear that he was replacing the temple and that our approach to God was to be through him because of his perfect once-for-all sacrifice for us. So we have these words in the, uh, the book of Hebrews later on in the New Testament. Therefore, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that's using the imagery of the temple, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest Jesus over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water." This is what Jesus does. He is the access to God. He is the meeting place between um, heaven and earth. And then, astonishingly, then staggeringly, 
Jesus, even more than saying, I'm replacing the temple, you know, you used to think you had to go to that special building in Jerusalem. You used to think you had to go through that rigmarole of washing and, and everything else to, to go in. I've replaced that. You come to God the Father through me and through my sacrifice for you. But then even beyond that, as I say, staggeringly and ridiculously, he then says to his followers, you now are God's temple. Not because we have made the sacrifice, Jesus has done that, but on the basis of his sacrifice, we are to be the meeting place of earth and heaven. Jesus says that about his people. About those who need to say, please be patient, God is not finished with me yet. Yeah, God knows that, but God has committed to working through his people, working through his purposes. And so that access that we are given to into God's presence is the basis for church being church and being that temple. And so the writer to the Hebrews went on in the verses after which I read to say, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, You see, that's building on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and what's given in the gospel. Let us hold on to, unswervingly, to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us consider how we continue building, not giving up meeting together, because when we don't meet together, the building is weakened, not giving up meeting together as some are, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the, the day of the Lord approaching. Sometimes I hear folks say things like getting a sense of um, God's presence, you know, when they see a fabulous sunset or when they've climbed a hill and there's an absolutely great view or folks going into the countryside and saying, you know, wow, it spoke to me of of God. And that's, that's, that's right and that's fair enough. The Psalms, for example, have many instances of God being praised for his wonderful creation. But the gospel teaching is that the clearest expression of the presence of God is not in the wonders of creation but through his son who took on flesh and became one of us. And then goes on to say that that clearest expression is to be continued in the people of God who are his temple, who, 1 Peter 2, are being made living stones. And so I have to say it's it's a puzzle and a frustration that for every time I hear someone say, wow, but with reference to seeing God in creation, how seldom I hear people say the same about changed lives of God's people. The clearest expression, the wow of the presence of God should not be seen in the brilliance of a starry night, but in the changed lives of folks around us who are in Christ. They, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 of the temple. And the temple was the meeting place of earth and heaven. And so we should most closely see, most closely enjoy the active presence of God and the lives of his people who are resting on the foundation and the apostles and prophets 
who are being shaped by Jesus as the cornerstone, who are being joined together and working together as his people for his mission in the world. For that's the presence of God. That's the temple. That is, verse 22, a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You'll have seen them many times, I'm sure, you know, plaques on walls saying something happened here. You know, this is where so-and-so was born, or this is where Adam Smith wrote The the Wealth of Nations, or um, Bonnie Prince Charlie slept here for two nights on his way to Carlisle and stuff like that. People have these plaques on walls. A Christian should have a plaque. I'm not suggesting you get them all tattooed on your body, but... um, Well, no, Christians, as it were, should have a plaque that says, the living God, the creator God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Holy Spirit of God lives here. Isn't that right? Verse 22, you're being built together to become what? A dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. That's the calling. We're not saying that makes us better than anyone else. We're not saying that we work hard and become good. I began by saying from the first half of Ephesians 2, we learn that it's God's work, it's God's salvation. But having tasted and received that grace of God, we're to become a dwelling place. So we have both a solid foundation and a high calling to reach out for. And as we seek to fulfill that calling, we need one another in the full place of one another so that the building is not weakened. We need to understand and recognize the need for a please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Not as an excuse for putting up with things, but as the reality of the gospel is still at work and changing so that this half-built thing is becoming more and more a dwelling place suitable for the living God. John, in his opening chapter in the gospel speaks about how in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word became flesh and the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. That's a gospel that God has come to dwell. He's not come just as he did to Zacchaeus to have a meal and then move on. He's come to dwell, to stay, to remain. He is bound up with us. Why he's done that It's the mercy and grace of God. We don't deserve it. But the gospel is that he has done that. And that we are to be then that dwelling place. That's much more than a building, isn't it? That's much more than just a few routine programs and and meetings or whatever. It's that calling to be Christ's. To be Jesus in the world so that people see more than the foundations. People see what's being built. People see the sense and the attractiveness and the worth and the beauty of it. It's the grace of God. But it calls us and asks us to give it our best shot. To build properly. Not to be a window that walks away. Not to be someone that plays one day, not the next. Because what is at stake is how worthy a dwelling place we make for the living God. Let us pray.